Welcome to Charity Village Connects. I'm your host, Mary Barrel. That's the sound of a hummingbird pollinating our world and making it a better place. The hummingbird is Charity Village's logo because we strive, like the industrious hummingbird, to make connections across the nonprofit sector and help make positive change. Over this series of podcasts, we'll explore topics that are vital to the nonprofit sector in Canada. Topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion, mental health in the workplace, the gap in female representation in leadership, and many other subjects crucial to the sector. We'll offer insight that will help you make sense of your life as a nonprofit professional, make connections to help navigate challenges, and support your organization to deliver on its mission. In this episode, we're seeing more people having to deal with this mass attrition, the great resignation. And so there's few resources, which is just perpetuating the burnout because those people left are doing more and having less capacity to do it. And they're all exhausted. The hashtag quiet quitting has amassed now 5 million views on TikTok and counting as more people seek to try to figure out this new employment landscape, find a better work-life balance. They're logging off on time, turning down extra projects and avoiding work emails outside of office hours. When burnout set in, rather than persevere, Laura Sousa decided to pivot. A few months ago, she quit her job as a bank executive to work at her local flower shop and hasn't looked back since. You realize that life is dear and precious and you want to make the most of it. And so I think that COVID helped me see what's really important and have the courage to make the change. When many COVID-19 restrictions began being lifted last year, Any hopes of a return to normalcy, that is, our pre-pandemic lives, were met with stark warnings from experts that the post-pandemic world could be disrupted permanently. A vivid illustration of this sobering assessment, perhaps, is the ongoing issue of workplace mental health. Fatigue, burnout, anxiety, and depression continue to plague workers in almost every industry, including the nonprofit sector. Trends like quiet quitting and the great resignation have resulted from many short-staffed organizations placing an even greater burden on already stretched employees. And the hopes for a brighter, less stressful future of work from home or hybrid workplaces have come up against the uncertainties of whether organizations will make these options permanent or not. To be clear, Workplace mental health is not a new issue in the nonprofit sector, but the pandemic has highlighted growing cracks that were already forming pre-pandemic. One year after we first covered this issue on Charity Village Connects, we're back with a wellness checkup on the sector. How are nonprofits faring today? What's changed since last year? And perhaps most importantly, What practical steps can sector leaders implement right now to better support the mental health and well-being of their staff and volunteers? When we have any kind of crisis like we did over the pandemic, your priorities become a lot clearer. What is important becomes a lot clearer. And people realized, I think, their vulnerability in terms of their mental health and well-being. So people are looking at employers in terms of, you know, is this a place where I'm going to have harm? 
I think realistically, everyone has experienced such profound trauma and turbulence caused by the disorientation of the pandemic that this has caused us to be basically bathing in anxiety. And you get this sense that we're in a fight, flight, or freeze mode, which of course is very much transferring into the workplace. I'd say that we are in a similar space to some degree some of the issues that we encountered during COVID may have actually gotten worse. We hear anecdotally of many workplaces, particularly in the health and social care sectors, who are really struggling around retention of staff and avoiding burnout. There's a lot of these myths that have been chattered, but that's really disrupted the relationship with managers, their ability to kind of control their employees and have that as a community of work. So they're kind of falling back a lot on the disciplinary thing. Historically, there has been a bit of a stigma around saying, I'm struggling, I need help. If leadership can show up and say, you know, this is an issue, there is nothing wrong with getting help. Last December, the TELUS Health Mental Health Index found that the mental health of working Canadians had improved modestly and yet remained at a level only slightly higher than the most challenging period of the pandemic. The monthly report, formerly known as the LifeWorks Mental Health Index, discovered that 32% of Canadians have a high mental health risk, while 43% have a moderate mental health risk. The Maritime Provinces recorded the lowest mental health score, while Manitoba had the highest. Newfoundland and Labrador saw a 2.3-point improvement in mental health following three months of decline. The index also noted that Canadian workers consider many factors when choosing an employer with well-being at the forefront. More specifically, 34% of Canadians indicate that health and well-being benefits and services are the most important factors when choosing an employer. In addition to flexibility and types of work, Canadians also cited an organization's reputation for positive workplace culture, diversity and inclusion, and socially conscious practices as the most important factors when choosing an employer. We begin our second workplace mental health checkup with Paula Allen, Global Leader, Research and Total Wellbeing, and a Senior Vice President with TELUS Health, publishers of the Mental Health Index you just heard about. TELUS Health provides support to organizations in the form of financial and counseling services, and by helping people transition back to work after they've been away due to illness or injury. Their key service, however, is supporting mental health, I asked Paula Allen if we're in a different space than we were a year ago when this podcast first tackled the issue of workplace mental health in the nonprofit sector. We're in a slightly different space. If we even roll back to when we started this pandemic, which was a big impact on our collective mental health, right at the very beginning, we had a lot of crisis. Everything was disrupted change on a constant basis, uh, a lot of fear, a lot of risk. And what we found is that people move to a higher level of risk. So those who were in a very difficult place actually went into crisis. People who had moderate mental health risks moved into a high risk category. That was really what we saw. And that has continued. You don't just move into a high risk place and immediately flip out, particularly since we have been going through ongoing strain. 
And then we started to see a lot of unhealthy coping behaviors. So for example, we are right now four times more likely to have people in the working population engage in risky drinking behavior. We're past the worst of the pandemic. We're not completely out yet, but we're on edge. After over two years of this upheaval, people are a little bit more sensitive to stress. We see more anger. We see a little bit more cynicism. We're definitely not back to the way we were. The way we were wasn't perfect, but we're still in a very compromised place. In its most recent index, published last December, TELUS Health reported some important insights regarding mental health and diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. I asked Paula Allen about these findings and what they could mean for nonprofit sector employers. Yeah, well, one thing is absolutely certain that there is significant overlap between diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging and a mentally healthy environment. Inclusion, equity, belonging are all things that impact mental health. And what we find is that certain groups, racialized groups, certain ethnic groups, people with various sexual orientations, their mental health is actually lower in terms of the score overall. So it doesn't mean that people aren't functioning and doing their job, but they're doing so with burden. A lot of our mental health and well-being is impacted by our environment. So we wanted to really understand that environment. So we asked questions of the entire population, and we found that people in different diverse groups had more negative experiences, including people who have identified disabilities. So more likely to be overlooked, more likely to be interrupted the things that actually add strain and diminish you. So that was some insight into what's happening in the workplace, conscious or unconscious, and really we validated the correlation with people's mental health. Also published last December was an article by Carolyn Keeley, an internationally recognized expert in change leadership and communications. In the piece, she focuses on organizations struggling with the disruptions of a three-year-long pandemic, especially when it comes to cutting through the noise of the attention economy. Carolyn calls this struggle one of the paradoxes of our times. I asked her what she meant by that and about the somewhat colorful title she gave the article. This is a piece called WTF is Going On, which seemed to have gone viral because many people seem to relate to just the weirdness in the air that I was trying to put my finger on. So I started off exactly as you indicate, talking about paradox, because it struck me as so intriguing that on the one hand, for example, people would say that they're exhausted and yet we're having trouble sleeping in record numbers. Folks are craving connection, want to go out. But on the other hand, when you get social gatherings, people are quick to want to go home and go back to our safe cocoons. On the one hand, travel and concerts are hitting record numbers. But on the other hand, many people feel concerned and unsafe about going back to the workplace. And so I just thought it was an interesting way to try to frame some of the ambiguity and turbulence we're all experiencing. In that same article, Carolyn Keeley writes about three specific challenges, psychological, social, and technological, that are disproportionately impacting both our home and work lives. 
I'm certainly not a mental health practitioner, but I am a practitioner working in organizational change and leadership and communication. So that's sort of the lens that I look at some of these things on. I identified these three main buckets of challenges that we're facing. So the first is psychological. Realistically, everyone has experienced such profound trauma and turbulence caused by the disorientation of the pandemic that this has caused us to be basically bathing in anxiety. And you get this sense that we're in a fight, flight or freeze mode, which of course is very much transferring into the workplace where you've got stressed out, fatigued, overloaded people bumping up against each other in all kinds of ways, which we're experiencing in issues like burnout and organizational conflict. Socially, by extension, we've also got this feeling of being unmoored and we've sort of lost the basic parameters and guideposts in our life. When you think about it, even basic things like what is a school? What is a church? What is work? All of these things have sort of vaporized and are being reimagined in ways that we haven't yet quite caught up to socially. I think the technological aspect is quite interesting and if anything becomes an accelerator of the first two, which is that we are in what has often been called the hyperactive hive mind. It's the most information saturated era in the history of mankind and again our brains have just not adapted to this onslaught and bombardment of information. And so we have a feeling that a red dot on our phone is commanding our attention constantly. People are having difficulty concentrating and really doing the kind of deep work that many of us crave in terms of having a satisfying experience at work, particularly among our not-for-profit clients who have a real sense of purpose and mission in the work that they're doing and yet find that they're just struggling to do what their heart wants them to be able to do, which I think is really explained at that psychological, social and technology aspect as opposed to being an individual failing. It's kind of like a non-stop stress for two years. A new Angus Reid Institute survey in partnership with the CBC reveals half of Canadians say their mental health has worsened over the past two years. Women under 55 in particular, over 60% say they're doing worse now than when the pandemic began. After two years of dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, a study from the American Psychological Association finding 79% of workers experienced job-related stress in the past month. Uh, before the pandemic even started, the World Health Organization took the steps of defining burnout. Now, they defined it as a syndrome associated with chronic stress at work that often goes unmanaged. Working from home is no longer a new concept, but what is new is the long-term implications it's having on co-workers. We are really essentially wired to be surrounded by humans. We really need connections and we need to see that humanity around us. After COVID-19 hit Canada in early 2020, it quickly became clear that the nonprofit sector was in a particularly vulnerable position. Major in-person fundraising events all but disappeared, and donors' attention was drawn away from charitable activities by one gloomy headline after another. When will the uh, pandemic end? And whereas private sector companies had the resources to pivot in this dramatically changed landscape, Many nonprofits found themselves hampered by their lack of investment in new technologies. By the second full year of the pandemic, when this podcast first checked in on mental health in the sector, 
The challenges had expanded to include the chronic mental health issues nonprofit professionals were facing. Words like burnout, isolation, and depression were top of mind, and many sector workers joined their colleagues from other industries in heading to the exits as part of what became known as the Great Resignation. To capture a more detailed picture of what's changed and what hasn't since we last explored workplace mental health, I reconnected with a guest who appeared on our podcast one year ago. Steve Lurie is the former executive director of the Canadian Mental Health Association's Toronto branch. I asked him if we're in a different mental health space today than we were a year ago. I'd say that we are in a similar space. To some degree, some of the issues that we encountered during COVID may have actually gotten worse. We hear anecdotally of many workplaces, particularly in the health and social care sectors, who are really struggling around retention of staff and avoiding burnout. I think that's offset by the convenience factor that people have learned and benefited by being able to provide some services virtually. But I think the sector is still struggling to provide the services they did pre-pandemic and adjust to new ways of working. And I think what happened is that the workplaces are actually struggling even more because it's a triple threat. You've got the flu rate where they're starting to tail off now, but that plus COVID. And then anecdotally, I've heard that particularly people working with seniors in the long-term care sector, there's a lot of COVID infection going around. So people's reserves have been challenged because when COVID hit initially three years ago, and I remember being parts of teleconferences with colleagues saying, well, it's only going to last 12 weeks. I don't want to depress your listeners, but it may be with us, according to epidemiologists, for many, many years to come. So not 12 weeks, maybe 12 years. And so the issue is, how do you adjust to that? Many workplaces have struggled because if they were short of staff last year, let's say, now they might even be more short-staffed. And then the question is, where do you find the time to do sort of the team-building exercise, the resilience piece that fosters workplace because you actually have more pressure to keep staff on the road providing services? I think people are now more conscious of what are some of the things they need to do. I remember reviewing some of the material from last year and many of the things we've talked about in this podcast and last year's are still factors. You know, the recruitment piece is a continuing challenge, keeping people present in the workplace. We knew prior to COVID that presenteeism was an issue in the workplace because people were worried about things like aging relatives, their kids, the status of their personal relationships, and that often took away from their ability to focus. So if anything, I suspect things have gotten tougher. I think more people are probably in the space of saying, well, when is this going to end? An aspect of mental health Steve Lurie and I discussed a year ago was radical acceptance, a distress tolerance skill based on accepting life on its own terms and not fighting what you cannot change or choose not to change. For a return conversation, I asked him to revisit radical acceptance and talk about how individuals and organizations can foster this skill within the workplace. The psychologist who developed this approach said, 
there are things that you just have to recognize you can't change them. And so how do you deal with it? And so this needs to be a conversation that we have about understanding. Like we now live in an era where for the foreseeable future, for you know every fall and winter and even in the good weather seasons, there is going to be the risk of COVID and other respiratory illness that have the potential to decimate a workforce. So it's one thing to say, geez, I wish this was over. But it's another thing to say, look, this is the environment we're living in. The notion behind radical acceptance is understanding there are just things beyond your control. So then it's the question of, okay, what are the things my organization can do to keep staff safe? So vaccinations, masks, obviously mask mandates are contentious. So even if organizations don't want to mandate that stuff, even saying, hey, staff, you should consider this and we will continue to make connections and give you time off if you need to go get your COVID vaccinations or your flu shots or we'll organize clinics. There will always be a supply of PPE and masks for you. And we would encourage you to do what you need to do to keep yourself safe. That, I think, creates some space for people to say, well, hey, my employer cares about my physical health and my mental health due to the stress of living in a COVID environment. There are instrumental things they are doing. I mean, the other thing, too, and we saw evidence of this during COVID is, you know, flexibility about time off to take care of ill family members and things like that. As cases of COVID-19 decline, Canadians may be feeling a sense of normalcy, but on the front lines... Every person has their, their limits. And when those limits are repeatedly and continually stressed, it'll wear down even the most resilient among us. We are getting a sense of just how important well-being and mental health is in the workplace. New research from Morneau Chappelle finds 77% of Canadians surveyed would consider leaving their current organization for the same pay if the new place offered better support for personal well-being. Citing a recent study of workers conducted across 10 countries, Forbes notes that 69% of people surveyed said their managers had the greatest impact on their mental health. That's more than the impact of their primary health care professional or therapist. The study also found that large numbers of workers are affected by stress, with 43% of employees reporting they're exhausted, and 78% saying stress is negatively impacting their performance at work. The Forbes article also highlights several key areas that workplace leadership should focus on, including managing their own workload, recognizing their personal impact on others' well-being, and reminding team members about how their contributions are valued and make a difference to the organization's vision and mission. With reports of workplace stress and burnout dominating the news, I was curious to know if organizations were adopting new ways of managing workplace mental health, such as embracing hybrid or flexible work hours or work from home options or if leadership was falling back on pre-pandemic solutions that weren't even effective back then. I put this question to another guest who first appeared on our podcast a year ago, Renzia Mellis. She's the founder of Integral Workplace Health and a certified psychological health and safety advisor. 
with over 20 years of experience managing and designing international employee support programs to Fortune 500 employers and nonprofit organizations. We see that in the news. CEO so-and-so has ordered everybody back to the office. So I think what's happening, and this is what people do when there's disruption, they try and go back to what they know and what was previously working for them. So what you find is that a lot of organizations are trying to go back to disciplinary authoritarian way of, you know, do it our way. This is what we need and you're beholden to us and must do it the way that we want you to do it. Even though the myths have been shattered, it's been proven. People are equally productive at home as they are in the workplace and in many cases actually more productive. So there's a lot of these myths that have been chattered, but that's really disrupted the relationship with managers, their ability to kind of control their employees and have that as a community of work. So they're kind of falling back a lot on the disciplinary thing. And when you're talking about new solutions, it's not new solutions, Mary. It's new opportunities to put in solutions that were always there. Engagement, what brings people engagement? Soft skills, care, listening, and involving people, giving them autonomy, giving them respect, taking care of them, having their back. These are not new ideas. And that has really come to the foreground. And so we're, in my mind, we're really at an amazing crossroads where because everything has been so disrupted and we really don't have a mold yet. We can create the mold. And if you've got a creative employer, they can create a new mold for how the workplace relates to its employees. In terms of employee well-being, Renzia Mellis says there's no returning to normal for management. No path back to doing things the way they used to be done. And employers who try to go back in time do so at their peril. It's understandable because this is what people do. They always go back to what they know and what they thought worked before. So I think when organizations think that they can go back to the way it was, that that's where they're making a big mistake. They're trying to put a square peg into a round hole. And I think they're going to have to understand, I think hustle culture is declining. It's coming to its end. That concept that was certainly in North America perpetuate a lot, but always on culture with the work from home. That has really changed and the pandemic has really brought people to a point of reevaluating what's important in my life, what is balanced, what do I need in my life, and what do I want from my employer. And so if they think they can go back to the way things were, it's to their own peril. The other thing is that the last word is not said. Even what we decide now, what works for this moment in time, that is going to evolve. There is no existing best practice. So they're developing good practice and emergent practice to deal with these change workplace relations, new employees, and everything else that's going on in society. Because it's not just the workplace is not just dealing with this issue around hybrid workplace. They're also dealing with the recession. They're dealing with environmental issues. They're dealing with so many other things that are relevant to their employees that it's quite complicated and complex situation. So they need to be aware of the fact and be creative with understanding that what they do today may not work tomorrow and that it may change and evolve because we don't really know how it's going to work out if we do all hybrid or all work from home. We don't really know what the next step is. Even the best employers and well-intentioned managers often fail to provide the support required for a psychologically safe workplace because they simply miss the signs when employees might be struggling or in crisis. 
Recognizing the signs of exposure to workplace stress and anxiety is something that Dr. Luke Schneider knows well. He's a registered psychologist and clinical research associate at PSPNet, a provider of mental health and well-being resources and support for public safety personnel and first responders. I asked him about his work with PSPNet and the kinds of challenges his clients are facing. It's a bit of a long list. The nature of their job, the helping nature that they do, comes with very real risks, and these often manifest as depression and anxiety, post-traumatic stress, and that sort of thing because of the nature of the work. All of that has now been compounded because of the pandemic, which now has seen some of these emergency departments become run. That means there's more calls to our paramedic services, more calls for policing agents as well. And so I think there's really a confluence of factors that have now come together that have really increased the potential risk of mental health injury amongst our public safety personnel, indicating that we really need to step up the type of services that are available to these members, given the important work that they do. PSPNet is really quite interesting. What we're talking about here is something called ICBT, or Internet Delivered Cognitive Behavior Therapy. To unpack that term a little bit, what it involves is taking your traditional therapy paradigm and kind of flipping it around a little bit. So instead of a person having to take time out of their day to attend a face-to-face session to talk with a health professional about their mental health, instead we've included all of the skills that are evidence-based in a very engageable website where people will go in and they will teach themselves those skills. With many nonprofit professionals involved in challenging and sometimes traumatic frontline work, Dr. Schneider sees a parallel with what public safety personnel that he works with face on the job. There might be some differences in terms of the nature of the work, but I think overall stress is stress. And when we're feeling very overwhelmed, we're feeling short-staffed, We're dealing with people that are now more ill than they were before, perhaps waiting a bit longer to present to their emergency room or longer to pick up the phone and call for help. It just adds an extra layer of complexity and stress to people working in these sectors. And also speaking of charity, there's also a lot of our frontline members that do volunteer peer support within fire organizations volunteer ground search and rescue. And these people are doing very, very important work, but are also exposed to some very potentially traumatic situations that, again, will compound stress and indicate the need for for some more service and help. Whether it's depression, stress, or anxiety, I asked how these conditions present themselves and when people should seek help. It really is kind of an individual factor. But there usually is a couple of different ways that they'll present. One way of presenting would be sort of on a cognitive level, where people will start to have maybe some self-doubts about their job, self-doubts about how they can cope with the demands of their workplace. And so those can give rise to what we would call distorted or maladaptive or unhelpful thoughts. And if we buy into those thoughts, they have a really, really big impact on our mood and how we're feeling. On the other hand, there's also the behavioral aspect of things. When people start to buy into anxious thoughts or depressive thoughts, they then might start doing things that are maybe helpful in the short term, but aren't very helpful in the long term. And what I'm thinking here is avoidance, avoiding reaching out to friends, spending less time with family, spending less time engaging in hobbies that are helpful to them. And so that's usually how these things will present. And it really is quite individualistic in terms of what's more prominent and how it's presenting. But all this to say, 
there really is an acute need for people to have better mental health awareness. And so in terms of that follow-up or that second piece to your question, when should people be reaching out for help? I think it's as soon as they start noticing these things. I'm more stressed than usual. I'm having more anxiety symptoms. I'm really struggling with thoughts about my competence or my ability to cope that I never used to struggle with before. Something's changed in terms of what I'm doing. My wife or my husband or my children are saying I'm not spending as much time with them. These are all sort of subtle indicators that mental health supports might be required in this case. The 15-minute meeting is just asking three questions. How was this week? What were the highs? What were the lows? And then this is the most important one that managers and coworkers can ask is, what can I do for you to make next week a little bit easier? What can we do for each other to make next week a little bit easier? It's so simple. After two full years of the pandemic, a 2022 YMCA WorkWell study found that 65% of respondents said their workload had been a significant source of stress in the previous three months. Put in the context of a 200-person organization, that would represent 130 employees. The WorkWell report stated that unmanageable workloads are not a new phenomenon, but workload challenges have certainly hit new heights since the start of the pandemic. According to the YMCA, this was happening for two key reasons. First, the high rate of employee turnover in many organizations has led to staff being asked to keep hitting the same aggressive targets as before, only with fewer team members. The second reason is simple exhaustion. Workers are taking on more responsibilities at the same time as their capacity to deliver has been dwindling. In literal terms, people are being asked to do more with less. That is, fewer people with less energy are performing jobs at a lower capacity. The YMCA WorkWell study was released in 2022, the same year Charity Village Connects first explored the issue of workplace mental health. One year later, it appears that not much has changed. Or has it? Have we turned a corner in addressing what many are calling the burnout epidemic? And if so, what wellness trends or techniques are pointing the way forward in such an unsettled landscape? I asked each of our guests for their thoughts on what signs of an employee burnout or exhaustion nonprofit leaders should be looking for, and what can be done to address it. Here's Paula Allen, Senior Vice President with TELUS Health. We are at a point right now in our population health where we are more sensitive to stress. We have been through a lot. We are still in a point of upheaval. We have additional stressors, economic stressors that are on top of us. The population is more on edge. So I think it's important to recognize that because you might be on edge and you don't recognize it. So how you communicate might be more harsh, might be more negative. You might have a little bit more cynicism when something comes to you and you have to be aware that that's a possibility so you can stop yourself and understand how your words might be impacting someone else. And from the other side, you might have someone who's responding to you in a way that takes you aback. And the last thing you want to do is to escalate that. Just recognize that we're all under stress. Take a few minutes. Remember that we have to be intentional in terms of supporting each other so people don't feel that lack of connection because we've lost it a little bit. Just that recognition is important for our interactions. 
So that's the trend. That's where we are right now. And I hope to come back and speak to you another time and say, well, no, we're in a better place. We should definitely be in a more aware place, even if we're not in a better place. The other thing is that there is much heightened awareness of the business impact of mental health. This is not new. It's just the awareness is greater. Everything that I am talking to you and to business leaders about and you're sharing with your audience is not only for the benefit of the individual. It's definitely for the benefit of the individual, but it correlates with productivity. It not only correlates with retention, but it correlates with innovation, with creativity, with collaboration, with discretionary effort, with all the things that make a difference in whether you're successful or not, whether you're a for-profit or a not-for-profit organization. When people have the undue burden of anxiety, fear, lack of safety, lack of a pathway to get support if they need it on a personal level, that is putting undue strain on their brain that therefore cannot, even with the best of their intentions, allow them to be their full and most productive selves at work. This is one of the reasons why CEOs are talking about workplace mental health like I've never seen them talk about it before. We are in a people-powered economy and we have to take care of our people and even investors are looking at the behavior of organizations and making decisions on where they'll invest based on their strategy, their people strategy in terms of health. For a change communications expert like Carolyn Keeley, empathy plays a role in supporting employees still being impacted by the lingering fallout from the pandemic, anxiety about inflation and fears of a recession. But in uncertain times, minimizing that uncertainty is equally important. I think you've got exactly the right idea. It is about empathy, but in many respects, it's also a question of balancing accountability with empathy. And I think that's where a lot of leaders struggle. They have been reluctant to set out guidelines and expectations because they fear a backlash and they don't want to say something that people won't like. And of course, this is what we're very much experiencing with conversations around return to the office. But ultimately, clarity is kind and people are craving clarity. And so what we're finding among our practices, those organizations that have had the guts and the discipline to figure out what are the rules of engagement, which could be many different things. Some clients have gone totally digital by default, others are mandatory in office, and most are somewhere in between, that that immediately drops down the level of chaos and turbulence in organizations. The other piece around this is the sense of agency because change communication is ultimately very much about respect and people need to have a sense of agency. So it's totally appropriate that people can say, okay, this employer has gone, for example, totally remote. I don't like that. I enjoyed the community in the office. So I retain a sense of agency that perhaps this is no longer where I want to work. And the converse is also true among the other end of the spectrum. So I really encourage organizations to minimize this period of uncertainty because we know that humans do best with good news. They do badly with bad news, but they do worst of all with no news at all. And this period of protracted uncertainty is, I think, causing a lot of harm. Carolyn Keeley believes that some workplace mental health issues begin right at the start during the onboarding process, while others are allowed to fester 
due to the often isolated ways in which remote or hybrid employees work and the failure to build community within an organization. One of the main areas that I think organizations are getting wrong is onboarding. And what we find is that the patterns of disengagement and mental health difficulty tends to be exacerbated by those employees that were onboarded during the pandemic. And I've seen, frankly, lots of heartbreaking stories of extremely talented people that are excited about a new job, but they're plunked in their living rooms. They have no sense of connection. Nobody's checking in on them. And they really don't know how this machine works. This is a terrible thing because racehorses need to race. People want to do their best work. Again, we find this especially in purpose-driven organizations in the not-for-profit sector. And then it's paralyzing, it's demoralizing, and it really causes tremendous pain when we look at people that don't have appropriate support. So I think in terms of what organizations are doing wrong, that's a big ticket item. The other is the sense of community. And I really think that community should be used as the instrument of change. Humans crave connection and community. We're hardwired for this. And yet we tend to be in a very siloed, fragmented way of operating that's really missing the mark in terms of a sense of community. So a simple example would be you see organizations invest a lot in town hall meetings, often online, which are organized in the old school fashion of a bunch of executives talking at their staff which is totally a missed opportunity for exactly what employees need and crave, not just at the head level, but at the heart. And so just simple shifts like having on-ramps for conversation, having that sense of community, whether it's the employer or whether it's a particular department or a particular project community, that I think is the most exciting instrument for change that is probably especially relevant in the not-for-profit sector. I've seen colleagues and done it myself where I've gone in with my first patient in a run of a 12-hour shift and stayed in the hallway with them for 12 hours, only to hand off to a night crew and then sometimes inherit that very same patient again 12 hours after that. This form of hallway medicine leaving paramedics like Surgeon with what he calls moral injury. To hear something of an acute nature, of an emergent nature go out and not have there be any resources, not to be able to do anything about it, is difficult for us to handle. We expect these officers to be resilient and ready and be able to deliver under very difficult circumstances. But if their health is in jeopardy because they're overworked, too much to do, don't know what they're supposed to do, priorities are not being set for them, then it's a real challenge. Steve Lurie, co-chair of the Toronto Police Service Mental Health and Addictions Advisory Panel, knows firsthand the devastating effects of unrelenting stress in the workplace. I asked him what resources are available to nonprofit employers and individuals to promote better workplace mental health and well-being. There is the Not Myself Today, which is I think notmyselftoday.ca. That's a really good resource. There's material about the psychological safety standard and toolkits, both the standard itself and toolkits on the Mental Health Commission website. For those employers who have at least a bit of money to sort of get a professional assessment of what they might need to do and what's possible, the CMHA Ontario Division operates a program called Mental Health Works, and they will come in and do an assessment of the workplace. And so this is the kind of thing where at the community level, 
potentially organizations could come together and then maybe they could work out an arrangement with CMHA Ontario where a group of employers could be assessed. And then you could develop a community of practice at the local level in terms of sharing resources. If you just put workforce mental health, plug it into a search engine, Google would take you to many, many sites and you can look at what's going on both locally and internationally. So there are resources out there. I think the issue for people is identifying that this is something I need to deal with as a leader. I need to make the time to consider what's going on. And that should involve consultation with staff about what their preferences would be. And then you try and figure out something that's workable for the organization. Introduced in 2013, the National Standard of Canada for Psychological Health and Safety in the Workplace, sometimes just called the Standard, is a set of voluntary guidelines, tools, and resources intended to help organizations promote mental health and prevent psychological harm at work. Said to be the first of its kind in the world, the Standard has seen uptake from coast to coast to coast in Canada, internationally, and across organizations of all sectors and sizes. For Integral Workplace Health founder Renzia Mellis, the standard, although first launched 10 years ago, still resonates in our current pandemic-disrupted world. I love that you asked that, Mary. Because, <laughs> you know, I love the standard. I think it is phenomenal. And it really, it's everywhere. How can it not come into play in this whole thing? Because what I'm seeing is that, you know, when I say bargaining positions versus interests and needs, these are the things that have always played in terms of engagement and productivity. All those factors that are covered in the national standard, respect in the workplace, support in the workplace, care, autonomy, having the tools to do what you need to do, clarity and understanding about what your tasks are. All of these pieces that are described in the psychological health and safety standard, these are the things that people have always wanted and that have always been right in front of our nose in terms of what do you need to do to create engagement and to have people be productive. So how can it not be part of it? It is underlying to me. It is the solution. So what does Renzia Malice suggest as a starting point for organizations looking to integrate the National Standard of Canada for Psychological Health and Safety into their own workplace mental health strategies? Okay, so there's different ways that they can do it. If it's actually an organizational position where the organization from the top down has made this decision, then they need to start with, for instance, in Canada, going to the Guarding Minds at Work. Guarding Minds at Work is a phenomenal resource that gives a survey that they can do, kind of like a pre-survey that allows them to see what is their readiness for change. And then there's a survey that they can put out with their employees to kind of see where do we sit? How are we doing on these different elements? There's 13 aspects of psychological health and safety. You don't need to address all of them all at once. But it will give them a handle to decide, okay, here's where our friction points are. Here are things that we can start working towards because it's not a one day thing. So my suggestion is first look at where am I? What am I doing? Am I ready to change? And then making the commitment to move forward, not overnight, making the commitment to say, okay, you know, this is our plan over time. This is where we want to go. This is how we monitor where we're going. 
And they can do that with an outside person, with a third party that manages and consults with them on that, or they can do it internally. A lot of regions and municipalities have people internally in their HR department that are responsible for psychological health and safety. And that will do that monitoring and keeping an eye on that and doing the survey because it's not the same as a satisfaction survey. It's really about those 13 elements that are really actually quite concrete and can be operationalized in the workplace around respect in the workplace? What does diversity in the workplace look like? So that's, I think, where they really want to start by looking at that. As a specialist in the assessment and treatment of a variety of anxiety disorders, including post-traumatic stress disorder, Dr. Luke Schneider takes the view that removing the stigma around seeking help is an important first step towards creating better workplace mental health. He also points to some helpful resources that are linked to our own website, charityvillage.com. Historically, there has been a bit of a stigma around saying, I'm struggling, I need help. If leadership can show up and say, you know, this is an issue, there's nothing wrong with getting help. Possibly even leaders engaging with some of these materials themselves so they have a better idea of what this treatment might look like. That can really go a long way. And so to that end, in addition to PSPNet on our SIPSERC website, we also have resources that people can go to. For example, how to support a colleague can be really helpful to get some very quick tips and how to what to look for, how to start that conversation with people. And then once the time is right, actually encouraging those members to go out and engage with something like PSPNet to address their mental health. Just a note that at this point, PSPNet.ca is only accessible to frontline public safety personnel and first responders, although plans are underway to make similar resources accessible to workers from other fields. So we're trying to expand PSPNet across the country. There are also plans to look at something that is geared towards the general population and work is kind of underway to expand that as well. So a little bit of time on our end to sort of make sure that that happens coast to coast. But in the meantime, in terms of other resources, one of the good things, if there is a good thing that came out of the pandemic, is Wellness Together Canada is a website that was created, again, with a partnership with the federal government to make sure that people have access to telephone counselling and resources as well. And that is available to the general public across the country. For additional resources available now for the nonprofit sector, you can check out the 10-part Mental Health and Psychological Safety at Work Master Certificate Program on CharityVillage.com. The e-learning program was developed by leading psychologists and mental health professionals, so you know you're receiving the most up-to-date and clinically sound information available today. The interactive modules explain the many aspects related to workplace mental health and clinicians provide clear guidance on how to optimally address these delicate and complex issues within a work setting. And now for some final thoughts on our checkup on workplace mental health in the nonprofit sector. Here's Paula Allen again. When we have any kind of crisis like we did over the pandemic, your priorities become a lot clearer. What is important becomes a lot clearer. And people realized, I think, their vulnerability in terms of their mental health and well-being. We all have vulnerabilities. If you're human, you do. But sometimes it's not at the forefront of our awareness. So protecting yourself, enhancing your well-being has become very important. People are looking at employers in terms of, you know, is this a place where I'm going to have harm? 
I do think it's important for employers not to just go with the flavor of the month or the news report, but really spend some time, talk to some professionals, talk to your employee assistance program provider, and really start foundationally in terms of how you build your culture and also how you provide services and make sure that you hear the voice of your employees while doing so. In a December 2022 article, global analytics firm Gallup reported that 76% of employees experience workplace burnout at some time or another. Think about that. Statistically speaking, three out of four of the workplace colleagues you encounter each day have probably experienced burnout and exhaustion on the job. But Gallup suggests we look beyond statistics and picture the actual faces of your struggling co-workers or team members. They're more than just employees. They're also parents and friends, each with their own unique identities, needs, and challenges. Taken as a whole, their individual struggles can impact all aspects of an organization, including through lower productivity, higher turnover and absenteeism, and higher health benefit costs. In terms of solutions, the article is emphatic that managers should have regular and authentic conversations with their team members about burnout. It goes on to suggest that as part of your check-in conversations, that is, those one-on-one meetings where employees and managers review successes, performance obstacles, and priorities, consider adding burnout and fatigue as a topic of discussion. We hope our look at workplace mental health will spark conversations within your own organizations as nonprofit leaders continue to come to terms with the evolving realities of post-pandemic workplaces. I'd like to thank our guests for joining us and sharing their valuable insights. Be sure to visit our website for more information on the resources mentioned in this episode and for show notes on this and other topics. You'll also find videos of our conversations with guests in their entirety. Charity Village is proud to be the Canadian source for nonprofit news, employment services, crowdfunding, e-learning, HR resources and tools, and so much more. Visit us today at charityvillage.com. On the next Charity Village Connects podcast... A 2020 public opinion poll reveals a 6% decline in trust for the nonprofit and charity sector. And according to data from another survey, only 50% of Canadians have trust in leaders of nonprofits and charities. That's down from 72% in 2009, when they last asked Canadians about this topic. With nonprofit leadership increasingly under the microscope when it comes to public trust, particularly in light of recent high-profile controversies surrounding organizations such as Hockey Canada and We Charity, and as the sector grapples with a lack of diversity at the leadership level, we ask, is it time for a leadership refresh? Nonprofit leadership in Canada. It's all about trust. Next time on Charity Village Connects. I'm Mary Barrell. Thanks for listening.